Before we get into the episode today, I just wanted to say that our guest audio is going to sound a little bit different because we are doing remote interviews in the wake of all this coronavirus stuff. With that being said, it's a great episode, and I'm excited for you guys to take a listen. The quality started to decline, and I was like, oh my gosh, I, I can't afford to trash my relationships this way. Didn't know, but I didn't want what we were doing. It literally just felt like a way to make money. It didn't feel like something that I cared about the value that it added. Like I didn't, it just really wasn't sitting with me. And I could feel that it was gonna start to tear at my most important part, which is like my relationship with my best friend. This is Finding Founders, a podcast showcasing the vibrant entrepreneurial spirit of Los Angeles and our journey to find the founders responsible. I'm Samuel Donner. And today on the show, we talk to Hollis Carter, co-founder of the Baby Bathwater Institute. All right, I'm going to give you guys a second to close your eyes and listen to that name one more time. Baby Bathwater. Without restricting that creative mind of yours, try and guess what this company does. If you guessed it was a group that hosts outdoor networking conferences with healthy food, unlimited booze, outdoor activities, and live music, then you'd kind of be close. Also, Hollis would probably rephrase that description slightly and say that it isn't a networking conference, but rather a connection conference. The word networking has a lot of professional baggage, so Hollis is trying to distance his event from that of the corporate vernacular. He's creating an experience that guests will cherish for years to come, and connection is something that Hollis has been promoting his entire life. Ever since he was a young boy, Hollis has worked to foster an environment focused on community. In fact, Hollis's discovery concerning the tenets of an ideal community can be traced back to his childhood experiences with his parents. Uh, but my dad grew up in like southern Florida, northern Georgia area, pretty poor. And they both weren't making a bunch of money. They met, they were therapists at an outdoor place for kids who were kind of on their last leg. But then he was hiking the Appalachian Trail and found out he was having me. And so I had to figure out a new path. We moved into, there's like, there's like the projects on one side and a liquor store on the other side. And then like this little single family home in Atlanta. And so all I know is we got robbed a bunch. I don't, I had to like shoot through the window at some guy at some point. And they're like, man, I wish you would have hit him. And by the time I was old enough to remember, we were sort of out of this zone. Although his family lived in a hostile community filled with violence, Hollis's parents managed to keep the outside world at bay. In juxtaposition to the divided community outside, the inside familial community was a united one, full of revelation, openness, and emotional vulnerability. In my house, we literally had like a feelings couch for different uh, moods that we would go into. And you knew you were in trouble if you were sitting on the the couch in that one room we never would go into. um, But when they both sat down across from you, you knew you were going to start unpacking some stuff. So, you know, the psychology thing was great because I think I developed a really high EQ, even though my IQ measured by typical like academic institutions is pretty low. I was a terrible student. I'm like wildly dyslexic. I I don't even try. I kind of actually just cheated on tests at school mostly because I knew I couldn't uh, memorize stuff. And it mostly felt like memorization. Dyslexia made Hollis feel different and at times like an outsider. Often conventional institutions like school don't value variation, but rather encourage conformity. Hollis, never one for conformity, found ways to circumnavigate the rules of the establishment and maneuver effortlessly through his school's curriculum. To accomplish this, Hollis drew on one of his key strengths, sociability. 
By utilizing the people around him, Hollis was able to navigate school with his own style. A typical learning style never worked. Like I know every test that came, I'd have so much anxiety because I'm like terrible at memorizing and I would skip lines when I read and all those things were pretty difficult. So I just had to come up with inventive ways to uh, use my social skills to make school work so I could just finish it. Whether it was like linking up with the girl next to me so I could look at her answers or, you know, figuring out how to do speed memorization and like teach myself little riddles. But I did feel like I was doing school well. Where I thought the cool kids weren't because I, I was kind of friends with all of the groups of people, uh, but never found myself stuck in one. But like I kind of liked everybody and got along with everyone. Uh, but had to sort of do my own thing because in the environment of school, I just couldn't ever shine at any of the little things that you know the government set up for me. There was a very specific point. I remember it was third grade, Miss Summershine's class, and they walked around and I got a tap on the shoulder and she's like, by the way, from here on out, you only have to do the odd problems of every test. And that just meant like, you're special, but we didn't have a special ed like class to put you in because you weren't that like off. And I was like, oh shit. I mean, that's nice, but... But luckily, my dad, like, I brought that home and we talked about it. He was like, honestly, you're just going to have to figure out a different path. While many would see dyslexia and ADHD as a debilitating disorder, Hollis didn't. Rather than viewing dyslexia as a weakness, he saw it as an asset. It pushed him to find novel solutions and socialize. He began to engage with his environment in a unique way that allowed him to have a valuable perspective. He learned to see nothing as a disadvantage, see nothing as a drawback or a hurdle. Instead, he took what could be perceived as a roadblock and used it to become stronger and accomplish more. Using his dyslexia as a catalyst for change, Hollis started a lawn mowing business. And so I actually ended up, I think, making probably more than my teachers by the time I was in uh, middle high school because I, my dad had given me like a lawnmower and a book of this guy, Jay Abraham, who had letters that he sent out for roofing companies. My mom drove me around the minivan. I put them in everyone's mailbox. And, you know, I had like 30 reoccurring billings on like the first two weeks of starting that little company with one lawnmower. I did all the work myself and then eventually I ended up to hire people and like a lot of my confidence came from being like, you know, I could do things outside of school that made me feel more adult in a way. My brother was like stuck on his allowance for the curfew. I knew I didn't want a curfew. So a big part of that was because I paid for all my own stuff and stayed out of trouble, even though I was a bit of a troublemaker, but I was good at street smarts. I had a different set of rules than my brother did. So a big part was just having freedom. Being outside was a huge part. Like I bought a, a boat. I could go fishing before school. And I also knew I could take my friends out there to party with no parents around. And that was a big lifestyle design that enhanced a lot of people's lives. I started skipping school a lot. I think I missed like 41 days, which is the legal maximum my, my senior year. I just, I just didn't like the typical system is the pattern, I guess. Like I remember we had an ice storm in Georgia. It was the most money I made in high school from that business. And no one like read the bulletin that the government was going to pick up your debris. No one knew about it. So I was like, all right, I'm skipping school all these two weeks and I'm going to charge $300 a truckload and I'll also cut it, bail it, do everything and hired a bunch of friends and did it. And it was like enough for me to leave and, and move to Aspen the day I graduated high school. Hollis's early entrepreneurial ventures had given him a taste of freedom. Up until this point, Hollis's life consisted of adapting and conforming to the lives of others. 
Sure, he was thinking in a different way, but he was still constrained by conformity. But now, running his own business, the constraints disappeared. This liberation brought him to the secluded and carefree mountains of Aspen. I just always knew I was a, a mountain guy. It was very clear to me that I was wanted to live in the mountains. And what draws you, you think, to the mountains? I truly solve all the big problems in life or business on a, while I'm skiing or mountain biking because you can drop into sort of this flow state. But if I like sit down with a journal and I'm like, if I just go on a mountain bike ride or go skiing for a bit, somehow like the subconscious works on a lot of the stuff and it's it's and it's and it's really good. Plus, I do think the people are better here than anywhere else in the United States. They just have a better work ethic. They're not too East Coast. They're not too West Coast. You know, we, we showed up there. We actually just bought a huge tent and lived right outside of town because Aspen's crazy expensive. Then eventually the sheriff told us we had to leave. But I had enough cash. I just wanted to play outside. So I got a job one day a week with the Forest Service. And they had housing in downtown Aspen, which would be like, you know, downtown Manhattan or LA, like the most expensive real estate in the world. They had like a bunkhouse if you worked one day a week this is the minimum to, to stay there so we stayed with all the other park rangers and stuff there and then i went to the temp service and it's like what's the you know most flexible freedom job to make some hourly pay so we could do this first gig we got was on a ranch i became a ranch hand on the the ranch which was like totally flexible hours you know we did everything from take the bear traps and stuff off the land to painting barns to parking their cars at their bougie parties i asked a lot of questions i was like the most question asking employee they probably ever had that's when i realized money managers are the richest people in the world when i was done with my job i'd always try to go get a beer with those people or you know Get, they'd invite me in for food all the time. I'd always say yes and ask lots of questions and just learn from them. Life in the mountains was amazing, and Hollis didn't want it to end. Think about it. Would you rather spend months stressing over college, an institution that inappropriately determines your level of success by the amount you can memorize and regurgitate? Or would you rather immerse yourself in the tranquil sounds of rustling leaves in the aspen trees, the wind blowing through snow-capped mountains, and a stream gently flowing through a forest? On top of all that, Hollis was getting paid to learn insightful tips about business and entrepreneurship from wealth managers. He was living the dream, but eventually the dream had to end. He had to go back to school. It did have the only like major I really wanted to do, uh, professional sales. It was the only one that didn't seem to involve written tests and memorization. And it seemed like an actual skill. I actually thought, worst case scenario, I could go be like a sales rep for an outdoor company and still get to drive around and stuff if I didn't want the pressure of owning a, a business. And the tests were literally like engaging tests where I'd have to go sell subs barbecue sauce to the Kroger manager and they'd film it. And they'd be like, here's what you did wrong selling this. Or you'd play golf for the day and they'd record it and then it'd tell you what happened with your conversation. So yeah, so we went back to Kennesaw and it was okay, um, but I probably called my parents once a week and told them I was going to quit. Hollis went from this to this. One question that I suggest you ask yourselves, certainly as law students, but you're going to ask He knew he needed to find some way to get back to Aspen, and Knowles was his solution. Uh, like I said, I was calling my parents every single week and telling them I'm going to quit, but I had the scholarship. So Knowles technically has college credits, but it literally was going to put me right back in the mountains and learning skills that I could get to start a guiding company or whatever. I was, it was educationally just phenomenal. So I finished that first semester, really didn't want to do school, so I left, and that put me in the woods for like 130 days in the mountains. That, I would say, is still the only educational thing I've ever paid for that was worth it, and a million times. 
So I think we were two months into the course, somewhere around there. There's a certification for medical. So you could be a wilderness EMT or first responder and stuff like that. So I literally just finished this, I think a week before this happened. So super fresh. Myself and one of the instructors went to a pickup where we're going to pick up new supplies on the road, but we came upon a motorcycle accident and it was uh, an elderly couple and they had already wrecked in this motorcycle. Guy was up in a tree, he had like a, uh, a limb piercing through his ribs and lung. And then the lady was unconscious, uh, no helmet on, trapped under the motorcycle and bleeding, but she had a pulse, she was breathing. So just kind of monitored her. And the instructor said she was gonna go get help and left me there to, to tend to the site until help came, which probably should have been the, the reverse scenario. But I did remember like pretty much everything that I had just learned. So I kind of like got him stabilized while continuing to check the vitals on her. He was freaking out, obviously, because his wife's like unconscious under the thing, but he was making things worse. Luckily, another car came. Lady happened to be a nurse. She kind of kept him calm and sitting here while I monitor. But then she stopped breathing. So we had to take the bike off and give her CPR for a few hours. Total, I think it was about an hour and a half until a medical crew came and they rushed him off. She ended up living for a few more days, but I ended up dying from like internal bleeding and, and he lived through that. But I got to be the only person to call my parents on the trip because, you know, I ended up having the ambulances and all the people around there for a bit. But it was quite a, an interesting thing. Was it traumatic? Yes, I would say long lasting. It's more the long lasting things was a lot of cool lessons, just like the fragility of life and also you can kind of turn into a badass when you got adrenaline running and do it, do what needs to be done. So I was like exhausted, but I wasn't during that scenario because adrenaline was like a real feel of that. But I didn't sleep for a couple of days after it. I definitely decided I don't want to do the wilderness medical thing or be an EMT or anything like that. Cause just the, the looseness in which these EMTs and stuff speak about death and all this stuff. And like this is arms got or whatever, like it just made life not so fragile and precious. This experience was traumatizing. Hollis was faced with an unprecedented amount of responsibility. He held a life in his hands. And within the intensity of that moment, Hollis had an epiphany. He didn't want to do this. He couldn't exist on the tail end of the human experience. He realized that he wanted to be at the beginning and foster interpersonal connection. Yeah, so I came back after that. Uh, went to school, got a, a weekend job raft guiding so I could stay somewhat still in my little mountain flow while I did school. But honestly, I still just hated the school thing, just kind of cranking it out. I was managing like my roommate's band. I was selling weed too. Like I was doing things to just keep my entrepreneurial career going. But then I saw an ad, actually my roommate saw the ad, like make like $100,000 a day online or whatever from home. And we, were, we saw the address wasn't that far away. And uh, we pull up, it's like a double wide trailer in Southern Georgia. The guy's on like super bike, shows up and like, he's obviously doing something, but he had basically bought tons of the information courses on how to build an online business. And this is a pattern I ended up learning about from working with him and going to a lot of these conferences is that, People just get so enamored with the possibility of success and these businesses in a box that you can buy from gurus and stuff. And that was sort of his claim to fame is he spent all of his like money that he got when he left the military on these things and almost like went bankrupt buying businesses in a box. Um, he made this huge post about it and ended up getting some of those guys to help him some more. You can kind of smell the sleazier seminars. Anyway, he bought a bunch of them. One of them was the rights to sell this guy's super expensive workshop. 
and he just put us on the phone, gave us a piece of paper with a script. He's like, you sell any of these, I'll give you 5,000 bucks. I was like, awesome. And we ended up selling like one each that day. It's like, how'd you do it? We haven't made any sales. It's like, I stopped reading that script. I just had a conversation with the person. The, the guy was stoked. We ended up working, we ended up becoming business partners with him. But we saw that like, there's a wealth of knowledge here and our different skill sets really worked well. Like he was not very good at the socializing party, a lot of anxiety around that but he was very good at writing sales copy and he could do the code and the tech and all these things. So we kind of took the baby out of the bathwater, if you will, and took up really good, valuable stuff out of this and learned how to do drive traffic, how to build converting sales pages, how to build email lists, like what niche marketing was. We've all seen those types of ads and emails and usually we just ignore them or put them in the trash. But Hollis didn't which is kind of sketchy, but it's this ambition and drive that would eventually lead him to success. While working on the business in a box sales pitch, Hollis started to notice an up and coming platform, one where there was real potential, a platform that he recognized as the future of socialization and engagement, a platform that is now valued at $459 billion. That platform was Facebook. Before we actually answered that ad, Facebook had come out in our college and, and in most of the colleges, we had to have, you know, the .edu to get into Facebook at the time. And like, I remember we were on a vacation and we were like, do you see how many users are in this thing now? And it's still private. And like, I know one of our roommates uh, had his girlfriend break up with him because of a picture on it. That was, I was like, this Facebook thing's gonna be real. You know, we hired some programmers out of India to build SchoolBridge which was the original business. It wasn't that original of an idea. We just took what we saw happen with Facebook and made a copy and sold it to Montessori schools. Connection has been at the centerpiece of Hollis's hustles, and SchoolBridge was no exception. However, the platform still had untapped potential. So Hollis began to iterate on the social networking model, developing it into a Groupon-type venture called Daily Deal. But over time, his enthusiasm for the project waned, and this affected the relationship with his best friend and partner, Mark. So we had the daily deal business and then our lifestyles were kind of changing. And my current partner is actually who I called and asked for advice. I'm like, this is like my best friend. He's coming in Monday to Friday, this hours to this hours. Like we're not on the exact same page and you know, things will work out because you still want to be friends with the guy and you know, you can create other stuff. He's like, why don't you just walk away and give it to him. And so that's what I did. And I just left the business. I did have that one day when they sold it. I was like, Oh, Man, that was dumb. But uh, Wait, that's, you, you, know, you make it seem like this like nonchalant decision, but like, w- w- was it difficult? Like, can you like describe? It was, it was difficult. I mean, I, I had a, a lot of back and forth. I called many different people and asked for their advice. The only one that kind of like hit me in the chest is the right thing to do for what I wanted. It literally just felt like a way to make money. It didn't feel like something that I cared about the value that it added. Like, I didn't. It was just like credit card and PayPal receipts, and someone was building a daily deal site somewhere, but. I, I wanted to know my customers more. I wanted to feel it more. I, I It just really wasn't sitting with me. And I could feel that it was going to start to tear at my most important part, which was like my relationship with my best friend. Hollis knew that maintaining his personal and professional relationships was far more important than amassing money. By continuing to work in a business that he wasn't passionate about, he was in danger of fracturing these relationships. He made the tough decision to leave Daily Deal. 
he decided to take his relationship building skills elsewhere. However, in doing so, he would learn the importance of investing in the right business partner. And it wasn't an easy lesson to learn. Then just started kind of putzing around with little hustles. Um, end up getting into some Amazon publishing stuff with somebody. So doing what I always do is I like called my relationships and started setting up deals. And these are people I knew well and cared about to start publishing the books and stuff. As a result of not running the company well and not having the same awesome partner like I had, who I trusted to manage things and make it work, this guy kind of mismanaged some stuff and it was clear it was going to not work. Money, the team that needed to produce the products that I sold, it was just clear. So I stopped selling and I had sold quite a bit of stuff, uh, but I knew I was going to trash my relationships if I kept on the path. So we ended up canceling like the business and I had to call every individual and be like, I'm not going to be able to provide the product and I will pay you back. If you do want to sue us, I need to know soon because I will have to like kind of gear up for that. But if you trust me, I'll make a contract with you. I'll pay you back within two years, everything. But I'm going to have to like downsize my life and figure this out. So I had to sit and have, like, I don't know, maybe 15 of these conversations. And they were large amounts of money. I'd say each person was no less than $30,000. And how many people? Probably like 20-ish. You said you wanted to save these relationships. Were these like people that you actually knew? Yeah, yeah. I spent so much time at all these conferences and circuits. I built like a lot of entrepreneurial friends. And I do, I stayed up, you know, till the sunrise, having drinks and talking about life with. And so, you know, I had those conversations. I would say it was what I hated it. I would never want to do it again. In his attempts to balance morality and marketing, Hollis learned a valuable lesson. It's impossible to serve everyone at once. While curating good relationships with others was a core part of Hollis's being, he came to understand that it simply wasn't possible for him to have a good relationship with everyone he came across. Taking this lesson, as well as those he had learned in previous endeavors, Hollis began to map out his next steps. He decided that the best place to lick his wounds and reevaluate the path forward was at a Upasana retreat. But first, Burning Man. So I went to that with like 48 hours notice and then went straight to the past list. So that was like two polar opposites, but I had used so much like emotional energy to deal with all that stuff that I just was like, I'm taking a quick little break and I'm going to come back and attack this. So I went and partied like crazy at Burning Man. I was kind of a one and done. It was a great timely thing, uh, but it was a big commitment, uh, super fun. And then I came home for a couple of days and then I did Vipassana. Which was still, it was, it was almost like Knowles. It was like perfectly timed when things were rough and crazy just to get a break. When you say perfectly timed, like I feel like it's more than just getting a break. What do you feel like you came back with in terms of learning? Well, so much, but so little too, that there isn't that much going on. Like you can get things done. Like having almost 12 days of silence to sit and think about the things you need to do and what's going on. I remember when it was all over because you can't read or write or make eye contact or talk or any of these things. And I was like, oh, I want to write down all these things I'm going to do to fix my problems that are ruminating in my head this whole time. It was like one page of stuff. I'm like, man, once you really think through it, a lot of it's just chatter and bullshit. I was able to get it down to a, a few things I needed to do to get things back on track really quick. Versus when you're sort of like have your phone blowing up and you're getting messages and content and all this stuff, it's harder to to get like a dial plan. And uh, it was super helpful to get that break. It was really pleasant and I felt great. Yeah, it was just, it was just perfect to get 
to that Burning Man thing and just like blast off and forget about stuff for 10 days and then 10 days of like very centered sort of healing stuff after dealing with a lot of stress. And I came back like ready to attack and, and do it in a very calm way. Feeling refreshed and with a renewed sense of clarity, Hollis was ready to tackle his next venture. He had hit his lowest point and was forced to drastically downgrade his lifestyle. But he didn't let himself stay down for long. Hollis drew on his relationship capital and moved in with his longtime friend, Michael. His relationship with Michael had always been particularly strong, and soon it would come to be one of his biggest assets. I actually met him at the, one of the very first conferences I did when I was working. We were in a, a hotel room, hanging out with all the guru speaker people, and he was in there, and I got an argument with a guy about some marketing concept, and he was in there and didn't know me at all, but he goes, stop pulling rank, that kid's beating you, and like stuck up for me. And then we ended up staying up all night, hanging out, and we actually broke into the kitchen to make chicken at the Hilton in Atlanta, because the restaurant was closed and the door locked behind us, so we got stuck in there talking. But then for like a decade, we just went to conferences together, but never actually did any business. But we sort of shared a, a lifestyle and we liked bullshitting about the same business stuff and helped each other out, but never did anything really uh, direct business-wise. We stayed up late talking to people and learning about them. And we'd also get up early and sweat out the night. Yeah, like sometimes we'd be at these trashy airport hotels. We'd literally put like a trash bag on and run around the hotel and sweat out the booze from the night before and get right back into it with people. And like, we would just kind of attack it in the same way. But yeah, lots of like, you know, getting truthful with people at night. And no matter how big or small their business was, like we would always learn the same stuff and have the same people who were like, that guy was a gem. I learned how he handled firing this person or getting this marketer. Like you learn how they dealt with stuff and it's pretty cool. Me and him actually did consulting work together and he helped me because he had a good name. I had a good name, but some sketchy things going on. And uh, we did like weekend consulting gigs for people and helped them with their marketing just, just to pay everybody back so I could get back on track. That made us a lot closer. And we learned we had a very cool dual way to, uh, to work together. What was your dynamic but, like between you two? Uh, I mean, we have a lot of similar background knowledge and skills, but our way we communicate is extremely different. He's 50, I'm 34. Uh, I'm like, you know, kind of the, the hippie outdoor person. And he's like the academic Jew. Um, like it's, it's very, very different. To, same like sort of ethics and knowledge, but very different approaches, which we find relate to people. And like the most simple way is good cop, bad cop. After years of attending the same conferences, the two had forged a deep connection. They found that while outsiders may perceive them as an unlikely duo, their shared knowledge base and ethos combined with their diametrically opposed approaches to business allowed them to successfully work together. With their consulting work helping to settle Hollis's debts, the pair was soon ready to tackle their next great adventure. So literally there was no plan. This was completely organic, like 100%. We've been doing those consulting things. We realized we were having lots of dinners and drinks and stuff together. We're like, let's start a company so we can get a company card so we can stop splitting our meals. And uh, we thought it'd be funny. One of the consulting gigs we sold was to a, a close friend. We wanted him to write the check to a really funny name. And so we made the LLC on LegalZoom at the bar and uh, got the payment from him for the consulting deal that was our seed money we sponsored this conference 
in Boulder that was coming up on conscious capitalism, which was pretty aligned with a lot of the stuff we cared about. But then it happens and it was sort of like this hoorah personal development and I invited quite a few people to come. So we rented a school bus and turned into a bar and drove everybody up to a, a bar in the mountains. It's like this old cabin and had like our first unofficial event. There was maybe 50 people that we invited to come up. And then they all had so much fun. We ended up renting a place at the lake the next day and getting tons of food. But people just were engaged and talking and we're like, this is like what we did at the conferences when we weren't supposed to. But now this is what you're supposed to do. And it like, it's working. And uh, people are like, hey, let's all ha keep hanging out. So for two more days, we rented like this camp spot by the lake. And we spent the rest of the money we had in the account and just kept getting catering and setting up things for people to socialize and transport people around. And, uh, and they're like, oh, we should think about doing this more. In spite of their lack of planning, or perhaps even a result of it, Hollis and Michael's first event was a huge success. Here, Hollis could have fallen back on the typical conference framework. However, he knew from experience that these really don't produce satisfying outcomes. By once more drawing on the kinship he had amassed with others, Hollis succeeded in bringing a group of like-minded individuals together in a more natural feeling space. In doing so, Hollis successfully created an environment that people wanted to be a part of. Hollis and Michael continued to arrange more and more events, propagating connections between attendees. And while no two events are exactly alike, there's one string that seemingly ties many of these interactions and events together, psychedelics. I would say not everybody in our group is into that, but it's definitely something we use. I mean, it is a big chunk of who me and Michael are together uh, and stuff. It's funny, uh, containers of world, I feel like has been spoiled by the personal development guru community, but set setting is like, it is everything in how experience is felt for people. And so if you can just focus on that, and that's why we don't speak at our own events or anything like that. We literally just go like, how do you want this to feel? Where do you want it to be? It needs to be safe for everybody. But you know, it's funny, there is a panel on psychedelics at every event, and it's actually the most attended of all of the subjects. The incorporation of psychedelics as a tool was naturally baked into the framework of Baby Bathwater. The focus on organic growth and development of the company according to what intrinsically felt right paired seamlessly with the counterculture promoted by these substances. Immediately, Hollis and Michael saw success in this dynamic business model. It allows for the institute to grow and change with the co-founders and members, and although it took time to build the company to the point of collecting money from those attending their events, they knew from the start they had stumbled upon something worth pursuing. They were ready to go all in. Yeah, so we, I mean, that first event we self-funded, me and Michael each put in, I think, like 10 grand or somewhere around there, and basically burnt through it because people wanted to keep hanging out and we ran this at a loss for about two years, living on our coaching clients. We both didn't really love coaching. Like, I don't, not my thing. There was a day where we were both like, all right, we're putting this and going all in. We started to have a team. It went from two of us to, I think, five. And we actually all moved up into the, our office was this crazy house with no right angles way up in the mountains. It's, you know, we were, we were in there every day just working. There's members always co-working and hanging out. It was starting to feel like it was building this weird momentum. And we just had enough people signing up for the events that we're like, hey, we can start to take a salary and stop being distracted and working on something else. 
The pair found that they had struck a chord. They quickly built enough momentum to justify working on Baby Bathwater full time. Baby Bathwater became a place where entrepreneurs from all walks of life could coalesce without the usual pressures of business. By focusing on the individual people, conversations, and the diversity of attendees, as opposed to immediate capital gains, Hollis cultivated a culture that people truly wanted to be a part of. Hollis had created the perfect environment for relationships to flourish and connections to be made. By bringing together individuals with vastly different backgrounds, they curated relationships that encourage growth and development in unexpected ways. It is this same growth and development that Hollis hopes to cultivate within Baby Bathwater itself well into the future. You know, one really interesting thing we've settled on, which I didn't know we would, is like, we actually have a goal of not really growing its size too much more. And we realized this this is not a company you can scale and make millions of dollars from, but we can make a sustainable thing. And the payoff for us is the relationships. I think we're just going to grow old with all these people and it's not going to look anything like what it looks like now in 10 years, but I do think it's going to exist, which I would have never, like, there is no goal of ever selling it. I can tell you it's evolved so much, like, they don't really look the same anymore as the first ones because the group has evolved and, like, where, you know, it was very e-commerce driven at the beginning, like driving traffic, customer acquisition, follow-up funnels, processing, like, how to get the best deals, like, all these kind of things, where that's, like maybe three talks at the event. Now now it's definitely grow and scale. Like that is the the central theme. But in that we've kind of added the personal side while we have the mental health and the psychedelics. We had a parenting panel, which I've never thought we would do. Kind of evolving as everyone grows up and are supported together. I just want to keep the same core group together and grow with them. We'll continue to probably do one big event a year to bring some more energy into the thing. And then as a, a business, you know, I, I think the goal is we want to start placing long-term bets, buying equity in, in our members' businesses so that it's a very natural, mutual, beneficial relationship where, like, it's not just collecting tickets and member fees. I want to be betting on the people who bet on us um, and make that work. The physical manifestation of baby bathwater is sure to be one of the many stepping stones in their future. From its very conception, baby bathwater has continued to change and to grow and to evolve into what it is today. Time and time again, Hollis found that falling back on strong relationships with those who share your morals and outlook, regardless of their industry or interests, proved to have advantageous results. And from all this successful growth, Hollis has some wisdom he wants to impart. If you're thinking, you're dreaming big. If you think you're dreaming too big, dream bigger. Every time you're thinking about something that seems too big, like know that once you get that, it's not going to, it's not going to be that big and there's much bigger you can do. Like there's been projects that we've done and it feels like the biggest thing in the world and it's so tough. And then you do it and you're like, oh my gosh, we could have gone so much bigger. Like uh, more faith in yourself that you can accomplish more if you really, really want to do it. I think it's huge. This idea of dreaming bigger is an intrinsic part of Baby Bathwater's structure. The dynamic nature of its anatomy all but guarantees continued development and evolution over time. But to understand the most vital aspect that allows for this continued growth, we must focus on the very entity that Hollis propagated from the start. Relationships. 
It's not enough to just have a good idea or passion or even a great business partner. The communities and relationships you build are absolutely integral to the success of your entrepreneurial adventure. This was something that Hollis understood from the very start. By focusing on developing and maintaining relationships rather than immediate monetary gains, Hollis was able to build a business that was beneficial and fun for all parties involved. He was able to build a business that would grow with himself and his peers and build a niche in the very space that he and Michael felt the conferences lacked. Invest in your relationships with others and they'll invest in you. This episode was a blast to put together, and I want everyone who was part of putting together this episode to tell you what they did. So without further ado, here's the Finding Founders team. Hi, my name is Adrian Tapia, and I was the lead producer for this episode. Hi, my name is Sophie Davies, and I helped write the script for the voiceover. My name is Charlotte Isidore, and I worked on the editing and helped write the script for the voiceover. Hi, I'm Elizabeth Bowen, and I helped edit and make the voiceover script. Hi, my name is Dharma Shah, and I helped edit and add music. Hey, my name is Luke Riggin, and I edited part of this episode. My name is Sahaj, and I helped edit and find music for this podcast. My name is Maddie Boson, and I helped edit this podcast.